It's Wednesday, August 28th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Former Vice President Joe Biden has enjoyed front-runner status among the 2020 Democrats since the beginning, but his electability argument may have just hit a snag. A new poll shows that he is in a three-way tie with Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. Biden is also having trouble connecting with younger voters. Amy Parnes, senior political correspondent at The Hill, joins us for more. Next, we are living on a planet increasingly overrun with plastic. More specifically, microplastics are showing up everywhere, even in our drinking water. Good news is that the WHO looked at the available data on microplastics, and as it stands, there is no evidence that drinking these microplastics is a threat to human health. Dan Vergano, science reporter for BuzzFeed News, lets us know why we don't need to worry, at least for now. Finally, we are starting to get a better picture of how Democrats want to change the tax system to generate money for all of the policies they are proposing. Instead of just taxing salaries and income that are generated from assets, Democrats want to shift toward taxing the wealth of the richest. Richard Rubin, U.S. tax policy reporter for The Wall Street Journal, joins us for the top three Democratic plans on taxes. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. He's a threat, in my view, a threat to our core values. And folks, four years of Donald Trump will be viewed as an aberration in American history. Eight years, eight years will fundamentally change who we are as a nation. Joining us now is Amy Parnes, senior political correspondent at The Hill. Thanks for joining us, Amy. Sure, thanks for having me. Former Vice President Joe Biden has hit a little snag in his campaign. He's had some ups and downs. He's mostly remained the front runner throughout the campaign so far for the Democratic nomination. But he's largely based that on his electability. His whole campaign is based on he's the guy to beat President Donald Trump. But some of the polls are saying that that might not be so. A new poll has him really running tied with Senator Bernie Sanders and Senator Elizabeth Warren. Tell us a little bit more about this, Amy. I think the former vice president had um, come out pretty strong and, and came right after President Trump. But then he kind of hit a few snags, the first being that he didn't do so well in the first presidential debate back in June. And then he has made a string of verbal flubs and gaffes. And I think that that has caught a lot of people off guard. And they think that he's not the strong figure that he originally portrayed himself as, even though he was making himself out to be the most electable of all the Democratic candidates. People thought at the first debate that Kamala Harris could be that person. Now that Elizabeth Warren is ascending in the polls, a lot of people think that she has the tenacity to go up against Donald Trump. So I think this is generally problematic for him at this moment. The Biden campaign did attack this Monmouth poll as an outlier. They said there was a small sample size. And there still are a bunch of other polls that show former Vice President Joe Biden in the lead of all the other candidates. This may very well be an outlier. I think it's too soon to tell. And certainly his campaign officials are pointing to these other polls and saying, look, he's still the front runner by far. I mean, you had a CNN poll that was out last week that showed him uh, way ahead of the other two, his other two rivals, Senator Sanders and Senator Warren. So they still feel like he has a sizable lead and that they're in a good position to remain the front runner going into what is going to be a very intense sort of primary season right after the Labor Day holiday. 
quick question about polls, because we all know what happened in 2016. Everybody was all over the place. And President Trump won, contrary to what a lot of polls were saying, although towards the end, they kind of started to even out. And I know it's very early in this race, but can Mm -hmm. we trust these polls? Have pollsters changed their tactics for the most part, you can trust them because they seem to be lining up with one another. And, and it, that's sort of what the Biden folks were kind of relying on yesterday, the fact that this one poll is so vastly different from all the others. So I think, yes, 2016 did teach us a very big lesson on polls and poll numbers. But I think you can get a snapshot for where things are right now. And you can kind of see that the top four have come into view, the top four candidates that will go into Iowa and the rest of the early states. And certainly you see the former vice president as well as Senator Sanders and Senator Warren and possibly Kamala Harris in the top four. Going back to Joe Biden and the electability and and his popularity and all, he's having a hard time reaching younger voters. I guess voters over the uh, 50 and up, uh, he's doing very well with them, but struggling with people under age 30. And, uh, you know, a lot of it, you know, he centers his whole thing on electability. I'm the guy to beat the president. But a lot of younger voters are looking for someone that's going to change the system. Big ideas. And he's not really hitting it off with them on that front. No, in fact, he's in the single digits, if you can believe it, with millennials and younger voters. And I think that is problematic for him because he wants to sort of emulate what President Obama did in 2008 and even 2012. He needs millennials and young people to be active in his campaign. These are the people who will knock on doors and and kind of be the backbone of the campaign and, and generate that excitement. And he's not really seeing that. And I think that's one of the reasons why you're seeing him sort of start a late night circuit where he is going on Stephen Colbert next week and he is sort of doing other things to speak to millennials, taking certain actions, certain policies this week to kind of go after them because he knows that he needs them as much as anyone else in the Obama coalition. Yeah, I mean, he needs those voters that were there for President Obama They don't seem to be turning up just yet for him. But somebody with big ideas changing the system, you hear Senator Bernie Sanders wants to start that revolution. Elizabeth Warren, you know, wants to challenge everything and tax the wealth of people and pay for these big lofty programs. And Joe Biden is largely kind of just an extension from the Obama years, which is not to say that that's bad or anything. But when other people are putting forth big, giant proposals, it just doesn't seem like Joe Biden is there. Right, exactly. And I think he needs to kind of meet these voters where they are in terms of going on to these platforms where he can reach out to them on social media and other places and kind of roll out what he called an inspiring agenda, um, what he thinks, what these younger voters want, things like climate. And, you know, Bernie Sanders did so well in 2016 by speaking to millennials about free college. These are things that appeal to these voters in the certain demographics. So I think the former vice president can do the same kinds of things. And he's been slow to kind of roll out these policies. And that's been a problem for him so far. Amy Parnes, senior political correspondent at The Hill. Thank you very much for joining us. Absolutely. Thank you. It's 
only been in the last decade that we've become aware of just how much uh, of these microscopic plastic bits there are in everything. And so drinking water, obviously a key concern. And they're saying, oh my God, we don't know enough about uh, what's going on here. We really need to take a hard look at these things. Joining us now is Dan Vergano, science reporter at BuzzFeed News. Thanks for joining us again, Dan. Glad to be here. We are living in a plastic world. There's plastic everywhere around us. It's showing up in our food and and it's showing up in our drinking water. That's what we're going to talk about specifically here. My, My favorite examples of how much plastic there is in the world is the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, which is this floating garbage patch between California and Hawaii. It's twice the size of Texas. And then other stories about how microplastics are blown across the world and showing up on mountaintops, pristine mountaintops where, you know, very few people are and plastic is showing up there. Uh, So it's showing up everywhere. And we have a lot of it in our drinking water, so much so that the World Health Organization had to look into studies about this. And they determined that right now, microplastics in most bottled water doesn't pose a health risk, but more study needs to be done because we really don't know the effects of this. Dan, help us out with this. What did the World Health Organization say? Well, yeah, it's key to say at the beginning that they found there's no health risk apparent in the studies that they've seen about microplastics in drinking water. Just to get that out of the way for people drinking a bottled water right now. This is basically a plea from uh, WHO to look into this. It's only been the last decade that we've become aware of just how much uh, of these microscopic plastic bits there are in everything. And so drinking water, obviously a key concern. And they're saying, oh my God, we don't know enough about uh, what's going on here. We really need to take a hard look at these things. The studies that they have looked at in in, uh, this report, they all have serious limitations. Help us out with the scale of this, because it is showing up everywhere. How do microplastics get into everything? I mean, you look at your bottle of water and you don't really see anything. It's the lid. Every every time you you know unscrew the cap and screw it back on again, little microscopic shavings get off of it. When they make the bottle, it you know degrades. It's it's not a perfect uh, mold, it, and little bits of it come here off here and there. And, and you're talking about things in the order of 100 microns for some cases of uh, uh, microplastics. It's just a ubiquitous side effect of manufacturing plastic material. The same thing happens, you know with glass bottles, there's a little bit of sand in them. And, you know, in your other cardboard boxes, a little bit of flecks of paper come off. It's just we don't know a lot about the chemistry of plastics in the human body. And so we're concerned about it when we discover, hey, there's a lot of this stuff here. Yeah. And right now we're okay, as you mentioned, but the production of plastics worldwide is projected to quadruple by 2050. So this just increases the amount of these microplastics and the concern uh, from there as well. Right. This is just a report on drinking water. You mentioned the Pacific Garbage Gyre, and the report points out that you know there's a hell of a lot of plastic everywhere that we're making so much of it and we're not keeping track of it that really this is just like one little area where plastics are becoming ubiquitous and that need more study. And one of the big calls, and this is obviously what's one of the calls that's been growing all over the country, is halting the use of single-use plastic products, uh, bags, bottles. We're talking about drinking water and, and, and you know, in bottled water sometimes too. But this is what the big stuff that's cluttering everything. Correct. Yeah, and obviously drinking bottles are the prime example. It's just too much plastic that's just being tossed away and lasts forever and then leads to this degradation that we're not quite sure what effects it's going to have. So the report does contain a plea for getting rid of those and uh, also, you know, wastewater treatment to get what plastic there is in the water out. And on that front, the wastewater plants, they do remove a lot of the microplastics that are in water, though, right? 
Right. Yeah. 90% uh, or more. And, you know, the filter in your uh, refrigerator, if you have one, or, you know, tap water filters, they do do a really good job getting these little particles out up to about 100 microns, which is about the limit of where the conventional studies can go. And then we start talking about these nanomaterials, which is another concern. And the big concern there is we just don't know how it's going to process through your body once, uh, you know, if it's going through your liver or something. That's kind of one of the concerns, one of the things we don't understand because there just haven't been studies to that effect yet. Right. It's hard to study on people, like you know, experiment on them. Hey, you mind if we you know, shoot you full of these bonobos and see what you, right? So that's a tough one. So we have to rely on natural experiments. And yeah, there's three kinds of concerns. One is bacteria might ride along on these things more easily. That's not clear. Just their mere presence might gum things up on some sort of molecular level. That's not clear. And then, yeah, they might degrade and they contain plasticizers and other preservatives that, you know, leach out of them and might have toxic effects. That's true of a lot of things. And it is worth saying your digestive tract is really good at getting rid of stuff it doesn't like. Uh, it's just that we don't know. Any other last things that the World Health Organization was suggesting to either help get this problem under control or other specific studies that they want to look into? Wastewater is the big win. Huge numbers of people in the world don't have treated water. And so they just said, if we just put a lot of effort into treating wastewater and treating drinking water, we could have a two for one. We get rid of infectious diseases that come through untreated water and we get rid of these microplastics. Dan Vergano, science reporter at BuzzFeed News. Thank you very much for joining us. You bet. The way that this is written is to say, first of all, going to tax all your assets wherever located around the globe. So if you were planning to move them to Switzerland or some island, doesn't make any difference. They are all going to be taxed. Joining us now is Richard Rubin, U.S. tax policy reporter for The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Richard. Hey, happy to be here. 2020 is on its way pretty soon, and the presidential race is starting to heat up. We're starting to narrow down the field a little bit. But one big thing that is starting to emerge now is all the big tax ideas that the Democrats have. They're looking beyond taxing income only, and they're starting to target wealth, other things that you wouldn't normally pay taxes on. So Richard, help us run down some of this. What are we looking at with the Democrats? Yeah, I think the place to start is to just realize that the Democrats' ideas for taxing the super rich really have moved in the past few years. Ideas that President Obama floated and went nowhere are now some of the more moderate ideas in the party. So that's step one, as we've seen this real shift within the party. And that's for a couple of reasons. One is it's a response to exactly what you just laid out, which is, well, we've got all these ideas on free or reduced cost of college, student loans, health care, and there's got to be ways to pay for them. And then the second thing is it's a response to wealth inequality itself, so a way to try and level some of the differences between the top 0.1% and and everybody else. And so that's a sort of philosophical backdrop for where Democrats have gone uh, with some of these proposals that you're starting to hear a lot more about during the campaign. So where are we with the Republican side on uh, their ideas on taxation? And then uh, let's get in deeper into the Democrats and how things are changing with them. So, I mean, the Republicans basically, you know, want to continue the tax cuts that they put in place in 2017 and, and maybe even expand them further. The energy for these newer ideas, particularly on taxing rich people, is really coming from Democrats. Let's start and I'll walk through each of the three main proposals here. But the backdrop is capital gains, right? Capital gains, the way it works, if you have an asset and you know what you paid for it and you know what you sell it for, you pay capital gains taxes on the difference. The key is that you only pay those taxes when you sell an asset, like a 
stock or a bond or something. And then if you die and you're still holding that asset, all of that capital gains that built up over your lifetime aren't taxed. So say you bought something for 100000 it's now worth a million, you die, it's in your estate, and if you're subject to the estate tax, you pay the estate tax, but that $900,000 gain never was touched by the income tax. Wow. And so Democrats say, we've got to have a new system. And the, and the first one that we'll talk about is Joe Biden, which is very similar to where President Obama was. And he says, look, this idea that you can die and all those gains that you accumulated over your lifetime don't get touched by the income tax. No, can't do that. Death becomes like selling it. So right. in that example I just gave, bought something for 100000 it's worth a million, you die, that 900000 becomes income. The other big plan we have is from Senator Ron White, and this one tends to get money flowing immediately. Yeah. And Senator Wyden, of course, is not running for president, but he, if Democrats take back the Senate, he would be running the Senate Finance Committee, which writes the tax laws. So if you're paying attention to taxes, you have to very carefully watch what he says. And what he says is, look, okay, every year, if you have a gain in your assets, not your 401k, but just taxable assets, take the example, you bought a stock for 100000 it goes up during this year to 500000 that 400000 difference in his mind, in his plan, becomes income. Even if you don't sell, that principle we talked about at the beginning, his plan would say, no, no, that's income. It would only apply to people at the very top, and it's got some complexities to it. But as you noted, it would start generating money right away, particularly in years when the stock market is doing really well. And the final plan that we have, the most ambitious one, is coming from Senator Elizabeth Warren. She has a lot of different proposals that she needs to pay for, and this one is going to get the most money out of the top 1%. Even a smaller fraction of the people than that. You know, She's talking about 75,000 households that would pay this tax because it only kicks in if you have a net worth of at least $50 million. And this plan is in some ways very simple in the sense that it just says, okay, if you have more than $50 million, any amount above that, you pay 2%. If you have more than a billion, you pay another percent above that. She explains it very straightforwardly, just like I did, and it sounds really good. It's got some complexity to it. It's that process of estimating what everything is worth. It's really straightforward, simple for stocks, less simple for things like real estate, and really messy when you think about some of the other assets that rich people have, right. including private businesses and artwork and all that kind of stuff. You would need and thousands of investigations to properly audit those people and those assets. And that's part of the plan. The Warren team is not at all naive about that. It's part of what they're trying to do to give the IRS the capability to audit tens of thousands of these people every year. It's not like creating a new fleet of IRS agents for ordinary people. It's really creating a team that will do these really intense audits depending on the required economic valuations of assets for people with $50 million and up. These are all very tough, tough things to change. And even if a Democrat wins the presidency, there's really no guarantee that this could take shape. I would think about it this way. I think about it in the long view. If you think of each of the past four presidents, all campaigned on a pretty significant tax plan and all were able to achieve big chunks of it. So in that long view, the ultimate tax law in 2021 may not look like what we're seeing now from candidates. But the gen- this is the general direction the party wants to go. And you're likely to see something like this emerge. It won't be easy. Legislating is hard. There's a lot of complexities here. But it's not just something that you can chalk up to, well, it's the campaign. People just say stuff. Richard Rubin, U.S. tax policy reporter for The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Sure. Thanks for having me.
That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.